listening to The Currency Welcome. I'm your host, Mike Gaston. This podcast is all about the power of human creativity applied to private industry free markets. Today, my guest is Casey Grage. She's the CEO of a company called Hubley Surgical. It's a startup with a really fascinating product offering. Casey's got an amazing background. She published her first novel at the age of 10. She's responsible for getting the largest solar array installed in Virginia. And uh, after finishing her undergrad work at Northwestern, turned down an opportunity to do her grad work with Columbia, quit a six-figure job, all to start Hubley Surgical. Casey, welcome to The Currency. Thanks, Mike. It's great to be here. Well, I'm really excited to have you for a number of reasons. I want to learn a little bit more about Hubley. I think it's a fascinating thing that you're doing. I think the audience will be interested in that. I want to hear a little bit about your experiences and what that was like. But I'm really curious about what it's, uh, I'm really curious to hear what it's like to be a young female entrepreneur in the Silicon Valley and in this whole kind of product and startup space. So thanks for joining us today. Let's start a little bit with Hubley Surgical. What is Hubley? You know, what is it all about? What do you do and what problems are you solving with this company? Yeah, absolutely. So we are a neurosurgical device company. So essentially, we are a small medical device manufacturer. We design and create tools for use in neurosurgical procedures. So right now, our main product is a drilling system for use in intracranial access procedures. And that that means that anytime a neurosurgeon needs to access the brain in some way, for example, stick a catheter in to relieve pressure or maybe put an electrode in for epileptic patients, there's a whole host of therapies. Anytime a surgeon needs to do that, they will bore a hole through the skull and then use guidance or, you know, Put, put the catheter into brain tissue. So what we've invented is a drilling system that has safety and guidance features for this procedure, which is the most common neurosurgical procedure in the U.S. and in the world. Now, when I was doing a little bit of research on this, uh, I, I was unaware that like currently the way that doctors do this, you know, get this access is essentially it's a hand crank drill into someone's <laughs> skull. I mean, it sounds very yeah. crude, but is that accurate? That's that's exactly correct. So uh, the procedure can be done inside or outside of an operating room. It's performed outside of an, an OR and commonly in, an, uh, in a trauma clinic or an ICU when it's an emergency indication. So that's usually when they need to relieve excess fluid, excess pressure in the brain. Um, and that's correct. They use a incredibly medieval antiquated device. It's this Integra Life Sciences cranial access drill. It has 100% of the market. It's freehand, manually cranked. And so when I was doing the research initially, I thought, well, okay, this is great that you're bringing a little bit more technology to the table. We'll talk about what that is. But um, I, I, it wasn't clear to me why this is so important. I mean, I get it. Like, oh, this is terrible. It's, it's old tech. But how mm-hmm. often is this a thing that's needed? Or how, is, is, is this a very common procedure to get access like this? Uh, yeah, I mean, about 100,000 procedures are done per year. And again, most of those are not done outside of an operating room, but that's that's about how many there are done per year in the United States. So, so 100,000 kind of, a year. Okay. Yep. So the kind of indications that this is, is um, the procedure would be used for patients with traumatic brain injury, sometimes intracranial hemorrhage, cancers of the nervous system, uh, hydrocephalus is a chronic condition of 
excess fluid in the brain. There's a whole host of uh, patients that need to undergo this procedure, unfortunately. And then, am I correct? Remind me, is it 50% of those end up having an issue? 50% of those that are performed at the bedside. That percent is lower for operating room procedures, but it's still not, uh, I mean, it's still not ideal as in it's not zero, but okay. it's, okay. yeah, it's, it's, it's more like 10% complication rates at the beds, uh, in the operating room. Okay. Well, that's still a, that's still 10,000. That's, I mean, it's a lot. So, yeah. so, so knowing that let's talk a little bit about your technology. Uh, it, it, I'm assuming this is not a hand crank. There's something about it that, that advances the, um, the way that this is done and the success rate and makes it safer, I'm assuming, for the patients. Can you describe what it is about the Hubley uh, unit that's that's better? Yeah, absolutely. So we have uh, two different versions of this product. One is solely hardware. The other will be hardware and software combined. So basically, uh, Drill 2 will have a surgical imaging component. Drill 1, which is what our focus and our resources are uh, centered on right now has battery power, of course, uh, plunge prevention so that the drill bit automatically immediately retracts as soon as it breaks the skull. And that's entirely mechanical. There's no uh, sensors there. It's pressure-based uh, catheter guidance to reduce the number of catheter misplacements and drilling guidance. Okay. Uh, I hate to make an analogy to some woodworking shop, but it sounds like some of the tech that you're bringing to the table, folks already have in a home woodworking shop, the ability to control depth. I mean, I understand, I'm not saying that yours is that simple, <laughs> but I guess I'm trying to contrast, like, no, we I, take some I of these things for granted. Know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, I mean, how, how I like to explain what we do is that we're taking a lot of kind of common sense features where, you know, neurosurgeons and the, you know, you and I would say, of course, why is this not in the procedure already? And we're just putting those all together in one streamlined system. Um, yeah. And so that's kind of, I mean, the novelty from of our product, a lot of, you know, a lot of our IP protection is around the plunge prevention mechanism. That's kind of the new and exciting component. Beyond that, it's really just putting everything together so that it's easy to use for a doctor in this particular setting. Sure. Well, and the reason I, yeah, I, I brought it up just thinking it's striking to me that this hasn't been done already. And I guess that's the follow-up question. Why do you think no one has tried to solve this problem to date? <laughs> yeah, so there, there's a couple answers. One is that people have. Um, there's something called a Gajar guide that is was invented by Dr. Gajar um, several years ago, uh, but you know, since then, the companies died, the patents expired. And the Gajar guide is a catheter guide add-on to the current procedure. And the reason it wasn't successful, even though it, it, it was accurate in reducing catheter misplacements, is that it was just an ease-of-use problem. Um, so, when, you know, in terms of having that catheter guidance feature, how we accounted for that in our product was that we basically took the exact same principle of the catheter guide and we just integrated it into the drilling system to account for that ease of use problem. Um, and then a few years ago, uh, there's another company called Phaser Drill, which created a battery-powered drill for use in this procedure, but there's no safety features. Um, so they got FDA clearance in 2016 and they haven't penetrated the market at all yet. And it's because doctors look at this thing and they say, okay, you added battery power. That's what we wanted. But 
now if we if we drill past the skull and into brain tissue, we're battery powered drilling into brain tissue. There's oh, no plunge boy. prevention. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> and I guess doctors, there's a certain element of, okay, if I'm concerned about hitting brain tissue, if it's a hand crank, I kind of have a feel, exactly. I would imagine, for where I'm at. So I'm going to trust my own uh, expertise and feel versus uh, just a machine that could kind of go haywire. Exactly. It's more about having the tactile feedback, which is the plus of the, the current solution. Um, although surgeons today would prefer a battery powered solution. It's just a matter of making sure that that doesn't end in tragedy. Sure. Casey, I'm struck by the question, uh, how do you test a piece of equipment like this when you're in the development phase, you're prototyping, what are you, obviously you can't ask friends and family to say, (laughs) would you try this product for me? What do you do in instances like this to replicate a human skull and brain? Yeah. Um, I mean, one, one thing you can do in very early prototype development is try to get models of skulls uh, and then use ballistic gel to mimic the brain. Um, such skull models can be similar to ceramic uh, material. Sometimes we use wood. Uh, once you get a little bit further along in the prototype development, then you can actually use animal bone. Uh, you can go to a butcher shop and uh, basically ask them if they have any skulls lying around, which is incredibly gruesome. <laughs> but that's, <laughs> that's uh, believe it or not, pretty common practice in med device world. Okay. Well, this is just, uh, I mean, it's just so unique. And, and, you know, the thing for me, you often hear of new product development these days being more software oriented. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody's trying to figure out the next Uber for X right. and uh, to the point where that's a cliche. What I think is fascinating is you've tackled a hardware problem, which is really daunting. I mean, hardware, you know, there's the, the, the landscape is littered with hardware startups that didn't make it. So you're, you're really taking on quite a challenge. Uh, and I just think of the product development process as being, it's got to be fascinating. Tell me a little bit. Now, I know that you, you took a class while at Northwestern yep. uh, and it was kind of a graduate level class, but you got in and you assembled a team and this whole concept came out of that process. Do you mind sharing a little bit of the evolution of the idea and how you came to decide to, to chase this as a startup? Yeah, absolutely. So we, we took, we being uh, myself and a couple of my uh, founding team members. Um, we took this class called Enuvention Medical a couple years ago, and this was a medical device entrepreneurship MBA class. Um, it was my co-founder, Dr. Amit Ayer, who's a neurosurgeon at Northwestern Hospital. He was getting his MBA at night with his abundant free time. Um, he was the one who came up with the original problem statement where he said, this procedure, this intracranial access procedure uh, as it is today, especially outside of an operating room, is incredibly dangerous, and I think there's something we can do about it. Um, and so, you know, throughout the duration of the class, we, of course, did more market research. We interviewed and surveyed uh, hordes of neurosurgeons at different institutions, and we started to go through the prototype development um, based on the requested features by the neurosurgeons we talked to. We ended up deciding to make this a real company when essentially, you know, it was really more of an incremental process where after we took the class, we said, okay, what's, what's the next step? Uh, you know, we're not, we're not jumping in and getting investors right now, but what do we do now? And, um, 
the next the next thing is pitch competitions. Uh, so we said, okay, let's let's go ahead and start applying to pitch competitions. It'd be cool to get some public speaking experience and maybe maybe win a little bit of money. Uh, and that's kind of what we did from there. And in that process of applying to pitch competitions and uh, actually doing them, we learned a lot about our company. We got a lot of feedback. Uh, we I, I personally got much better at communicating our message. Um, I think that was the first tri- the first step in transitioning from class project to company. And so you graduated school. You went on to work at J.P. Morgan as, uh, I believe, a software uh, engineer. Yeah making a, a good buck. Uh, you, you did your, you did your, uh, you did a double major at Northwestern. You did it in, I won't say record time. You did it in three years as opposed to four. Yep. And, and nowadays most people take five. I mean, let's face it. It's like college seems to be getting longer and longer. It's good for the colleges and their, and their uh, balance sheets, I think, but not for any of us. Right. But, um, <laughs> so, so you had to come to a point where you said, look, uh, I'm going to go all in. Cause you, you've quit that job at JP Morgan and you're full-time the CEO of this startup, what, what was that like? Like what prompted you to, to move this from side hustle to use common parlance into this is what I'm devoting my, my life work to right now? Yeah. I, I mean, really what ended up happening was that I, I met this woman who was a judge at a pitch, pitch competition. Her name is Nancy. Um, and she became a mentor of mine just in the last, uh, I want to say October, November, the the two months right before I quit my job. And it was really, it was really her who said, you know, what are you doing? You have this amazing idea. You have this great company. It's exciting. Why aren't you all in on this? And I didn't really have a good answer. And, and that's, and that's when Mm. I realized that I, I, it was time. Wow. Okay, great. So she kind of reframed the, the, the situation for you and it made you just reevaluate your decisions and where you are. Yeah, exactly. So you've been doing this just for a handful of months full time, correct? Yeah. Uh, yeah, since yeah. the beginning of December. And we don't have to get into details, but I know you've gotten a little bit of funding to get things kind of going. What phase are you in right now as far as the startup? I mean, obviously there's product development, et cetera, but as far as getting the startup to a place uh, where you can really make some inroads. Where are you in that? We are about to close our pre-seed uh, friends, family, and fools round uh, just probably in a couple weeks now. So that's that's exciting uh, in terms of our funding milestones. Right now we have about six people full-time if you include contractors and consultants, although I'm the only full-time employee. We did just hire someone who is starting off as a part-time consultant, but is on track to become an employee once we begin our seed round in May. Okay. So that's kind of where we are. And when we talk about double major, what is it that you studied in school? I'm just curious what that double major was. Um, It was computational neuroscience. And then my second major has an interesting name. It's called science and human culture. It's basically global health. So uh, how okay. how you can apply science to uh, impact lives. Casey, I really feel like you should have stretched yourself and taken some courses that were a little challenging. I don't know why you went so easy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, double major in and of itself. I don't care if it's uh, j- just light, light uh you know, liberal arts is a big <laughs> load. So you really, you really obviously have quite a mind 
and a drive. And uh, so I respect that. So let's let's shift gears. I want to talk a little bit about the experience of being in uh, Silicon Valley. You kind of made the move. You grew up in the Midwest. You studied in, were working in Chicago. Now you've moved out to the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Before we do that, I want to encourage uh, listeners to please check out Casey's company. I will put links in the show notes, but you can go to hubleysurgical.com. That's H-U-B-L-Y surgical. Dot com, And uh, you can learn a little bit more. There's a video where Casey describes a little bit about the company, but you can learn about this kind of cool startup that she's involved in and some of their technology. Uh, so Casey, let's, let's take a, a, a look at what it's been like for you to be an entrepreneur in Silicon Valley, being young, female. It, has that mattered? I mean, we just celebrated International Women's Day uh, recently, like has your sex made a difference? Has your age made a difference? What this, what has that experience been like? Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't really know any different. So it's it is difficult to tell what's what uh, experience I have that are unique to being a young woman and what's not. Um, sure. I will say before I dive in that I I just want to qualify that all of my experiences are definitely driven by being privileged in most categories. So when I'm speaking to being a young woman, that's, uh, you know, that it, that is real experience that I have, but I also uh, have a lot of other factors in my life that have given me a lot of opportunities. Um, but yeah, in terms of age, I will say, I think that age is more of a factor for women than it is for men. Um, and, and I say that because as a, as a young entrepreneur, I, I, I get told that I'm too young a lot. Um, and it's, you know, I'll, sometimes I'll get told by investors that I don't want to invest because I'm too young or I'll, I'll be told mostly not even by people that are telling me that directly. It's by advisors and mentors that tell me that I need to surround myself with people with more experience. I should bring someone with, you know, maybe 30 years work experience into an investor meeting just to have someone sitting there to, kind of be the adult supervision, if you will. Um, even obviously I am an adult, but, uh, you know, I, I've been told I, uh, I should do things like that a lot. And when I speak to other men that are about my age, a lot of times that if they've been able to tell me that they're, the fact that they're young has been a huge plus for them because people think of them as the next, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, it's a sign of being a prodigal, um, and so that's been kind of interesting to realize over time that I think that is tied together with my gender. But at the same time, I think that I being young is a huge asset where if I were, you know, if I were, if I were a woman at the age where I'd be having children, then I think that would be basically infinitely worse when it comes to uh, investor meetings where you'd, I'd get questioned more on my time commitment. Um, so that is, that is the thing that I think applies to all young, young entrepreneurs is that everyone believes me when I say truthfully that this company is this my entire life right now. Yeah. You know, uh, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but for listeners, I, I, most of them that listen have kind of maybe intuited. I tend to be politically, socially conservative. That said, having run a business, uh, multiple businesses, having female employees, I'm very sympathetic. Um, you know, it, it is different for women in the workplace. It just is. And to pretend that it's not, it doesn't matter where you're coming from politically, is just intellectually insincere. So, for instance, I remember, you know, having employees that were, um, 
you know, the age where they had children, you know, young or teenage children, uh, they were expected to work a full-time job and bring an income into the family. They, they, it was a, both a privilege and an expectation <laughs> in the kind of modern world. But they still had to do all the mom stuff. I never remember the, the husband saying, let me take some time off from work and take the, our kid to the doctor. It was always, you know, the, so there's kind of a double-edged sword just on that right. level. So I would imagine coming into these meetings, there's just some things that people don't realize they're even doing. The fact that you might get um, not treated as serious or weighty enough, uh, or the fact that as you age, people start evaluating you differently based on, well, is she going to be committed? So I think that's tough. So what do you do? I mean, I'm not hearing an individual that's complaining. So I'm not setting this up like, hey, it's been hard for you. Uh, Woe is Casey. (laughs) But Clearly, you're just pushing forward, but like, what do you do to try to address those kinds of things? When someone says, hey, uh, bring an older person into the meeting, do you say, well, I'm just going to be pragmatic and bring an older person? Or are you like, no, on principle, I'm going to go it alone? What's what's your response? Uh, no, I definitely do the pragmatic route. I mean, it's kind of what I was saying at the beginning, where it's hard to know. Uh, it, it's hard to know how much is tied together with kind of inherent subconscious misogyny versus just it's I mean it's true I do have you know I don't have that many years of work experience compared to people maybe in their 60s who have been doing this forever sure that's just a right reality. so yeah. I, I'm not yeah. I'm not trying to push against that and when someone says you know you're incredibly young and I was I was dumb at your age so I don't uh, I don't want to invest you know can't <laughs> can't argue with that too much. So it's, it kind of just is what it is. I mean, I, the best I can do is really just build my company and prove that I have a good product. I would imagine too, some of it is just trying to find people that resonate not only with the product opportunity, um, because I've spoken to folks in venture, you know, it's cultural fit too. Like you want someone investing in the business that get what you're all about, what your values Mm -hmm. are, what you're trying to build, not just someone that comes with a checkbook. And I would imagine some of that process is just trying to find those people that align and have money. (laughs) Like that's, you know, perfect. When they align and have money, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of that is all about finding people that are interested in medical technology. Um, And I think a lot of the the values and mission statements from med device, uh, health tech entrepreneurs, um, is, is pretty similar. We, you know, we all ultimately want, want humans to have access to health. Can you do me a favor and just share uh, what's been, what's been your biggest challenge over the last handful of months as you focused full time on this effort? (sighs) Um, I think, yeah, I think the thing that I've been most stressed about, uh, is, is basically funding. I mean, you know, that's kind of over the course of the few months I'm knock on wood or thankfully not stressed about that anymore. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think it is kind of straddling, um, saying, you know, being very realistic and saying we are an early stage company and you're taking on a lot of risk, but you should invest anyway. I do genuinely believe that, uh, I mean, I clearly believe there will be returns. I mean, I quit my job to do this. I, very much believe in the mission. So it's kind of been basically learning how to, how to do that, how to find the balance between, you know, I cannot take your money without letting you know that there's a very good chance you won't get a return, but also I personally believe there will be a return. Um, that's probably been the biggest challenge. Sure. Especially when you're in that, as you turn with the friends, uh, family and <laughs> fools round, 
you know, the, often these are not sophisticated investors. These are people that love you, care about you, are fascinated, kind of want in. Uh, when you're at that other level where you're talking to venture and private equity, et cetera, they're a lot more savvy. You don't have to make that. They know. They know like, hey, we're investing. We realize what we're getting ourselves mm-hmm. into. Uh, but I would imagine it's a little different at the round that, in the phase that you're at right now. Right, especially for an early stage medical device company where we don't have FDA clearance yet. It's it's risky. I mean, when you're dealing with uh, regulatory bodies, it you don't always know what what can happen. Yeah, how long does that typically take the FDA FDA process? So we are a class two device. There's uh, there's three classes of of medical devices, class one, two, and three, um, one being the least three being, you know, the least risky three being the most for class two devices. A couple years ago, the average number of days it took between submitting your application and getting FDA clearance was, I believe 161. Um, but before you submit your, uh, your 510k, proposal, you have to do a lot of testing. And that testing is really dependent on how much money you have to hire FDA consultants to pay for the uh, mandated tests. So so overall, I'm, I'm, this is a long winded answer. But you know, let's say that let's say it, it takes a couple of years, on average. So having that FDA clearance at approval, does that make fundraising easier? Uh, obviously, two years, is that's quite a ways out. I'm assuming you, you want to be further down the road than uh, just still doing fundraising, but does that make it easier? Um, yeah, absolutely. So, so again, for us, I would say that we already started this process um, because, I mean, the process really starts when you begin prototype development and you have a design history file. So first, you know, first you say you have the idea, you file the patent, then you start actually building the product. You know, maybe there's kind of ebb and flow in there a little bit, but anyway, so we've already started that process. And then uh, I would say after you get FDA clearance, you're just at a whole new level. You know, that's when you can really go to VCs. That's when you can talk to strategics uh, seriously about, about partnerships. It just completely changes the game. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this kind of goes back to just an earlier observation or comment I made around the difference between software versus hardware. I mean, that this really is a different challenge than saying we've got a software concept, we've got a proof of concept, we've got a business case. It's like, yeah, I'll throw mm-hmm. some money at that. You, you've got such a big mountain to climb, <laughs> I think, in comparison. Yeah. And then add to that, you're, you know, you're in this field that's highly regulated, and rightfully so. I mean, if you're going to be drilling into my skull, I kind of want a few uh, other parties making sure that this is a Definitely. good product. Definitely. Um, I love free markets. This is not one of those things I want the market to figure out. You go, oh, well, you know, we, we drilled too deeply into a few skulls. The market decided this isn't a safe product. I'd rather the government or somebody say, yeah, this works. No, I, it I have a lot but, of respect um, for the FDA and the work that they do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, a- absolutely. But it's just striking how, you know, this is really uh, an impressive thing that you've taken on. So, so knowing that, like, w- it, it's been a short period of time, but like, what are you most proud of right now? What, what thing uh, can you look at now and say, hey, look, I, I took this risk. It's been a long process to get to where I am right now. But here's something I'm really proud of that I feel like I and the team have accomplished together. Uh, so this is, I guess, less of an accomplishment and more of a um, mentality. But I'm I'm really proud of us for really being a, a need based, mission focused company. Um, 
and really focusing on talking to neurosurgeons, uh, talking to patients when we can, although of course we don't want to, uh, bother them, but, um, basically, you know, talking to the, to the key stakeholders, uh, beneficiaries of this product and making sure that every step along the way, we're making a product that people want. And, you know, that's based on, on feedback that you're getting mm-hmm. so far. Uh, and I would assume also that's based on the fact that you're, you're solving a kind of an odd problem. I'm still struck by how, uh, crude the technology is. I just can't believe that that isn't, you know, is there a lot of that in the medical world? Is there a lot of that kind of technology that just is there because we've just done it this way for, for decades and decades, or is this unique? I would say for procedures done outside of an operating room, that's, that's more status quo than one would think to have these antiquated devices. But then once you get into the operating room, things are yep, different. There's I much it. more control. I mean, you can do surgical imaging in the operating room, uh, ultrasounds. There's, there's just more control for the doctor. It, let's say you're successful with this product. Uh, do you have ideas on on where you're going to take the company? Are you hoping to build this on one product? Are you saying no? We we want to become a broader company that 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 is innovative across a number of products. Or well, problems? already in our pipeline, we have you know I was telling you drill one and drill two. Uh, drill two being the 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 one that has the software component added in. So so yes, we we plan to have uh, a portfolio of products and. Um, you know, we, we have a kind of a preliminary product roadmap right now. So that's the goal is really to become a, is to become a medical device, you know, manufacturing company that has, that's focused right now on, uh, bedside procedures. So, you know, procedures performed outside of the operating room and also, uh, neurosurgical procedures because most of our connections are with neurosurgeons. Uh, but we think that there's a lot of, a lot of medical need and we really want to, uh, make an impact. Okay. Let me ask you a question. As you kind of get through this fundraising, you get through FDA, let's say everything just moves along. Now you're, you know, leap forward a handful of months or a year or whatever. You've got all this approval. Uh, you've got funding, you've got a product. What's, what's your plan to go to market? Uh, how easy or difficult do you think it's going to be to get doctors to adopt this technology? I, I, I don't know what that looks like, but I have to imagine that's going to be its own challenge or its own problem to solve. And I'm wondering what you've been thinking around yeah, that. Yeah. So, I mean, a, a lot of that is that we're going to be relying uh, very heavily on the connections with neurosurgeons that we've made already. It's a very tight knit community. So making sure that we have those allies in the field who can really speak to our product. Um, the plan for go to market is that after we get FDA clearance, we will build out a small in-house sales force of about five very experienced uh, neurosurgical device sales personnel. And we're going to target three to five hospitals um, largely teaching institutions because, you know, we say part of the value proposition with our product is that we have safety features. Uh, and so for people, for neurosurgeons with less experience, this is the product they should be using. If you don't have a lot of experience, you want these added fail safes. Uh, so basically for the first couple of years, we'll be targeting these, these, these few teaching institutions with our in-house sales force, and we'll really kind of wrap up our multiple that way. Then we'll be able to go to strategics or um, uh, contract sales organizations. And we can say, look, with just this small 
uh, Salesforce, this is what we've been able, this is the revenue we've been able to get from these institutions. Imagine what you can do with X, uh, you know, times, times this Salesforce. So as you're, you know, I'm thinking of this business, I mean, there's a number of facets to it. You've got the the neuroengineering, mm-hmm. the hardware, um, there's the whole product innovation and, and product development lifecycle aspect. There's the fundraising and the startup aspect. There's the day-to-day management. And then on top of that, there's a whole kind of marketing and business plan for the future once you get past some of these phase gates and hurdles. Who's responsible for all these different aspects that have to be happening? Again, if I go to software, and I don't mean to downplay software, but I just think, you, you know, you, if you've got a laptop and a coder as a partner, you're in business. With, so I'm overstating it, obviously. But there's a lot more complexity here that requires depth, domain depth. I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, you can just become a product development or sorry, a hardware development expert just because you watched a couple of YouTube videos. So how are you parsing out? Are you doing everything or <laughs> no. what, what does this team look uh, like? We have a really, really good team. So on the technical side, we have our advisor, Mark Fisher, uh, and he was actually the professor of that NUvention class I talked about at the beginning. Um, so Mark's been with us for years now. Mark is a lifelong medical device engineer, um, and he's he's a great guy, but more, you know, importantly to the company is that he has a lot of domain expertise when it comes to, uh, developing devices that ultimately get FDA clearance. Uh, our newest hire Tyler is also, um, in that realm where he has, uh, over a decade of experience working in medical device startups and bringing devices from ideation to getting FDA cleared and, uh, and then we've also um, contracted a manufacturing firm at one point uh, called Cooper Perkins. Um, they've been instrumental in really accelerating our product development. Uh, on the managerial side, that's largely me, but with you know tons and tons of advice from mentors, investors, um, kind of anyone that I can get feedback and advice from, I, I do. Uh, and then we also... Also on my team, we have uh, Nate, who is a law clerk at Jones Day. He went to Northwestern Law School, and so he really helps with understanding the kind of the legal jargon. Um, And then we have great both corporate counsel and IP counsel at Perkins Coe. So uh, I'm definitely missing a few people, but we we have a great team. (laughs) I was going to say you've done a great job assembling a team. Oh, and then then there's Amit, the the neurosurgeons, which, you know, of course, they have (laughs) very... Without them, yeah, without them, this wouldn't be a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And they were, were they your partners in this class? Amit was, and then Nikhil works with Amit. And so that's how he joined a little bit later. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, as we're kind of coming to a close here, I'd like to ask a couple more questions as we wrap up. One is, can you share a little bit about your experience, maybe some advice on finding mentors? You know, I went through life too strong-willed and stubborn to even understand that I should ask for help or I should find mentors. I just thought, you know, if there's a brick wall, I have to break it down with my forehead. That's just how it works. And uh, as I got older, I realized, goodness, like mentorship is such a powerful thing. So someone that at a young age has availed themselves, can you share some experiences around mentorship and and maybe some advice? Yeah, I mean, I have, I'm extremely fortunate in that I have a lot of really amazing mentors. um, And I, 
ask for help all the time. So I think maybe that's, you know, step one is to know what you don't know and ask for help, even when you don't think you need it. Um, I, I would say the number one piece of advice is just try to try to gauge intention. Um, there are so many uh, very intelligent, very capable people out there who want to help young entrepreneurs just because it's fun and they, you know, they have kind of a paid forward mentality. Um, there are other people who will, you know, are, are kind of courting your investment, uh, which is a whole different thing, or sometimes people try to go after equity. Um, so, you know, I've, I've had all of the above, but definitely it's, it's about finding the people that are interested to help just because they enjoy it. So you're, you're trying to find people that, uh, you're gauging intention and how do you find them? Are you just reaching out to someone saying, Hey, would you mind having a cup of coffee? Or is it more, I just kind of like, you know, I met this one judge and we got talking she's kind of become a mentor. Is it more organic? Are you purposeful or, or is it more organic? I guess uh, is a little question. of both. I, I, I think it's mostly organic, but I, I am part of this, uh, alchemist accelerator in the Bay area and they kind of do, um, coaching matchmaking, <laughs> mentor matchmaking, uh, and so I found a couple cool. really awesome people through Alchemist, but but again, that's kind of uh, facilitated uh, weeding out of intention. Where the people who volunteer to be mentors at Alchemist really are just passionate about uh, helping young companies, uh, and so and so that's that's kind yeah, of that's good great. that they uh, the Alchemist uh, organizers do that for me, and then from there you just kind of. I, I have reached out to a lot of people through Alchemist, um, the network, and said, hey, you volunteered to be a mentor, would love to get coffee. One of the things I like about, it, you know, as I'm listening to you guys early on said, let's start pitching this mm-hmm. and pitch competitions. Uh, you've joined this group, the Alchemist group. It's like you, you it, it seems like when you, even the fact that you want to join this, this take this class uh, that didn't necessarily fit into your, um, where you were in in the school, but you're like, I really want to do this. The fact that you engage, I think engagement is so important. You get yourself out there. You're not just stewing on an idea in your, uh, <laughs> your dorm bedroom. You're not just kind of thinking about this and writing notes to yourself. You're out there engaging and putting your ideas out there. And it sounds like in the process of doing that, other opportunities are opening up relationships, uh, support mentorships, et cetera. So I think that's, um, that's pretty pretty smart that you've been willing to engage early on versus, you know, some people like, I don't want to put this out there until it's perfect. Uh, you know, they love to work on their idea, but at some point you got to get out there and share it with people, even if it's mm-hmm. not ready yet. Yeah. I mean, my, um, most days yeah. my entire job is doing this is basically talking about my company, which I love. So it works out, but sure. yeah, I, I think that also makes, um, networking easy. You know, everyone says you have to network and, um, I hate I absolutely hate artificial networking where it's, it's very clear. Both people <laughs> yeah. are trying to get something out of it. Yeah. So what I think of is, or what I do instead of, uh, networking, I guess, is I basically just every, every step along the way of building this business, I reach out to pretty much everyone I know. And I say, Hey, can you look at my pitch deck or can you, can you look at this business plan? I, I have this idea, uh, for, I don't know, or I'm, I'm hiring this person. Sure. What do you think? And I basically just get help along the way. And through that is how I meet a lot of really, really awesome people that have been able to really instrumentally grow my business as well. That's fantastic. Casey, as we're wrapping up, what's one piece of advice you would give to other, uh, you could be young or old. I don't want to, I don't want to 
pigeonhole this for any, but like, what's one piece of advice that you've pulled from your experiences over the last handful of years has led up to where you are right now that you would share with either want to be or current entrepreneurs? Oh goodness. Um, you know, this might be a little bit of a long-winded answer, but I, I was always told by founders before I got started that I'm, I was going to get a lot of rejections and that I was going to need a really, really thick skin. Um, which is true, but I think one thing that is actually unique to being a young woman in startups is that I think people are a little bit afraid to be mean to me. <laughs> um, uh, right. Like I, I, I very rarely go into a meeting and ha- and get yelled at, um, which, which is nice. And I, I, I get feedback is oftentimes just phrased in a kind of a, <laughs> maybe a kinder way than I'm used to. Um, which, you know, obviously I prefer to not get yelled at, but at the same time, I, um, I, I think that part of where that comes from is, is that I'm not seen as much of a threat. And so I think the same, um, I think the same place where that comes from is also what would make me less likely to be, uh, an investment later on. You know, I'm, I'm seen as less of a threat, but also maybe less competent. Um, ah, okay. And so I would really just say, try to, try to get hard truths from people. And this probably applies more toward being a young woman in startup world than, uh, you know, maybe being a, maybe being a a man, but yeah, I would say really, really do try to get the honest truth from people and say, you know, I'm, I'm really looking for criticism here. I'm, I'm really looking to, to grow. Um, and that's been the most helpful. I think it's great advice. And I think, I think that's advice that cuts across any age group, any sex, because you think of different circumstances. Uh, when I ran a business, often my employees wouldn't tell me the hard truth. I mean, they were honest with me. It wasn't that they would lie to me, but you know, it's different. I signed the checks. Uh, if I'm in a bad mood, Oh, I don't want to make Mike upset, but sometimes I need to hear things like, Hey Mike, this behavior of yours is not helping us as a business or, you know, I know this is your opinion, but I think you're wrong. And I need to hear right. that because how do I grow? And uh, so I think I think asking for hard truths and wanting those uh, is really sage advice. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm with you 100%. Folks, my guest today has been Casey Grage. She's the CEO of a startup called Hubley Surgical. Uh, Casey, thank you so much for being for being a guest on the show today. Thank you. I had a great time. Yeah, great discussion, folks. I would highly encourage you, please check out Casey's company. As I mentioned earlier, I will put a link in the show notes. Uh, the show notes are on my website, mygaston.com, but just go to Hubly Surgical. That's H-U-B-L-Y surgical.com. You can learn more about Casey's company. I'll also throw some links in there for things like her LinkedIn uh, profile, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, etc. Pretty active. You can connect with Casey there, learn more about the business and uh, stay in touch with this really <laughs> exciting thing that she and her team are building. Uh, and if you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast. You can find The Currency anywhere that find podcasts are provided. That would be Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, etc. Hit that subscribe button and do me a favor, leave a review. It lets the algorithms know that this is a show worth promoting. Guys, thank you so much for your time. I love you all and I'll catch you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.